0: Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to be able to bring to you presentations from the Poison and Poisoners one-day event that took place in London on the 29th of April, 2017, which was organized by Casebook Classic Crime in association with Mango Books. The following is by journalist, broadcaster, and writer Stephen Bates, with a talk entitled The Prince of Poisoners. William Palmer and the Trial of the Century. His book on William Palmer, The Poisoner, The Life and Crimes of Victorian England's Most Notorious Doctor was shortlisted for the Best Nonfiction Crime Award at the Malice Domestic Conference in the United States in 2015. And so let's venture into the Poison and Poisoners Conference to hear Stephen Bates and the Prince of Poisoners. Okay, our next
1: speaker is a journalist, a broadcaster, and a writer. In a 36-year career, he worked for, among others, the BBC, the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Mail, and for 22 years for The Guardian, for whom he still writes occasionally. He is the author of eight books, mainly on history and current affairs, the most recent being Royalty Lie, Britain's best known brand, about the royal family as an institution. Uh, He does also have uh, copies of his book, The Poisoner, uh, along today. So if anybody would like a signed copy, I'm sure that Stephen will be willing to oblige. But can we please have a warm welcome for Stephen Bates? Thank you very much. Thank you for that. I must say, after what Linda was saying about uh, lacing the sherry, I remember when I was at college, uh, a tutor... Offering me a glass of sherry and said, "What do you take with it?" And at the age of eighteen, I was a bit flummoxed by this. I thought, "You didn't take anything with sherry." And he said, "Oh, I have Ribena with mine."
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Poisoning indeed. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me to speak. Um, we've mentioned uh, my uh, person uh, before this afternoon. Um, my talks about William Palmer the Rugeley Poisoner, who was the subject of my book, uh, about, uh, and I uh, thought it was appropriate, actually. I've been thinking that all afternoon, uh, that uh, this talk should take place where it does, because uh, many of the most significant episodes in William Palmer's career took place in noisy pubs. He was, for a time quite a long time, actually, the most infamous murderer uh, of uh, the 19th century. Um, For many generations, Midlands mothers uh, told their recalcitrant children that uh, if they didn't eat up, Palmer would get them. He's almost forgotten today because there have been other more depraved or more uh, uh, more generous murderers over the last uh, 150 years. Palmer was hanged in 1856 in front of a crowd of 30,000 people outside Stafford Jail for the murder of his best friend, John Parsons Cook. And his execution took place after a two-week trial at the Old Bailey. It was one of the sensations of the age. And in this talk I thought I'd discuss how this Midlands doctor was turned into a fiend before he ever came to trial. I think it sheds an interesting light on uh, Victorian society attitudes to murder, particularly of poisoning, and uh, a society avid for murder and sensation in some ways similar to our own, and also sometimes rather different. In Charles Dickens's words, and Dickens covered the trial at the Old Bailey, Palmer was the greatest villain ...that ever stood trial in the Old Bailey Dock. Queen Victoria clearly followed the case each day... ...and wrote in her journal... ...that horrible palmer, a doctor and a blackleg. Everyone was convinced he'd done it, the scoundrel. So obviously Prince Albert wasn't censoring the newspapers... ...over the breakfast table. She knew all the details. It was truly an international sensation too... The story was carried as far away as America by the New York Times, of all esteemed publications. It described him as the Borgia of the Betting Ring, a story that outdistances the best-selling romances of Bulwer-Lytton. The novelist, who we've been reminded already this morning, uh, is famous now for that opening sentence in Paul Clifford, it was a dark and stormy night. Actually, the next sentence is better, The rain fell in torrents, except at occasional instances. And the trial was also reported as far away as Australia, although by the time they were able to report it, Palmer was long dead. Palmer became one of the great villains of the 19th century, routinely referred to as a devil and a serial killer who had poisoned maybe a dozen or even more people, even though he was only hanged for the murder of one. So here he is. Uh, It's not a waxwork, actually. It's uh, supposed to be a photograph. Uh, It's uh, probably a decarotype. It was published in a book about the case in the 1920s, but I've not been able to track down what has happened to it, or even whether it still exists. Stylistically, it looks authentic, and the appearance of Palmer's face compared with the death mask that was taken after his execution. seems to show that uh, it was the same man. There are similar blemishes on the face. The obvious point is how ordinary he looked. Victorians expected to be able to tell from villains' faces and the bumps on their heads how evil they were. Think Bill Sykes and Fagin. But contemporary reporters, when they saw Palmer in the dock, commented that he seemed fair-complexioned, good-natured looking, stoutish, nothing particularly striking. That was from Henry visitelli a journalist who we'll come back to in a bit. As the Morning Chronicle said, a casual observer would set him down as a respectable, good-humoured farmer and a physiognomist would be more inclined to give him credit for social and convivial habits. His forehead is high and open, and altogether the expression of his countenance is the reverse of disagreeable. You can see what they mean. This, of course, just made Palmer all the more scary. If you couldn't tell that he was evil by looking at him, how would you know? It was worse because, of course, he was a doctor too, as Linda has been pointing out. Actually, he was a sore bones surgeon, like most country medical men, a practitioner of what was called physical carpentry, in other words he would uh, be able to chop things off you, delve things out of you, but not probably diagnose what was wrong with you, nevertheless a professional man who you had to trust to make you better and not kill you. What was worse was that they had access to the insidious new poisons that Linda was mentioning thrown up by the processes of the Industrial Revolution or discovered during the exploration of the periods of imperial expansion. Strychnine, for example, the poison Palmer was accused of using, is derived, as Linda again was saying, of the nuts vomica plant, found in Asia and Africa, which had only been isolated in the early 19th century. Its symptoms, asphyxia and the convulsions leading rapidly to death, were terrible and terrifying, but had understandably been little observed in human victims. The rare cases involved people who had, been, who had ingested strychnine by accident. There was a notorious case in the 1840s of a lady who was prescribed medicine by a chemist in uh, Romsey in Hampshire um, and died almost immediately because he'd picked up the wrong bottle with white powder in it. The chemist was so mortified that he hanged himself. Palmer was the first person to be charged with poisoning using strychnine, but it was easily obtainable over the counter in the chemist's shops of the little town of Rugeley in Staffordshire, where he lived. It was sold for killing vermin, and you could buy it for a penny a grain, less than a teaspoon's worth, and a grain would kill you. Palmer in the week before his most infamous murder purchased nine grains for ninepence. You'll have noticed that, as Linda again was saying, a high proportion of Victorian poisoners seemed to have been doctors. They had access to drugs and knowledge of what they could do, and if you died, well, that was part of the natural course of events too, not a matter necessarily for suspicion. And poisoners, of course, were naturally sneaky and unnatural in Victorian eyes. And in the 1850s, there was a middle-class panic over poisoning. You just couldn't tell with a man as normal-looking as Palmer, or your wife, or your husband, or your servant. And uh, Sandra's already quoting one of my favourite uh, lines from the time, from another newspaper article in 1855, uh, Your household is perhaps a well-regulated family. Your friends and relatives all smile kindly on you. The meal at each period of the day is punctual and looks correct. But how can you possibly tell that there is not arsenic in the curry? That appeared in November 1855 in a weekly publication called The Leader, just as Palmer was poisoning Cook. It was probably written by George Lewis, George Eliot's partner, who was the editor of the Leader at the time. Next slide, please. William Palmer's downfall was gambling. He killed because he was getting into worse and worse debt with moneylenders. He had a stable of 17 racehorses, which were as expensive then comparatively as it would be now and which he couldn't afford, and which did not win often enough to pay their keep. And so he resorted to increasingly desperate measures. By the time of his arrest, he owed more than £23,000, which is enough money today, but multiplied by perhaps 40 to get the scale of his problems in modern values. Apart from that, he also had a mistress who was blackmailing him following an abortion he had procured for her. Next slide, please. This is Henry Padwick, who was one of uh, Palmer's moneylenders. And uh, looking at him and his uh, crafty expression, he's not the sort of man you would probably wish to borrow money from. He he was immensely rich. He'd been a Sussex farmer who gravitated to Mayfair, uh, offered dinner to young gentlemen in financial difficulties, and then um, took them for all they were worth. And as you can see... He was pretty prosperous and uh, pretty nerveless. One scheme, and Palmer was not uh, not alone in this, to raise money, as we've heard about de la Pomeray, was exploiting the lax life insurance regulations of the period. He took out extravagant life insurance policies on his wife and then on his alcoholic brother Walter and tried to claim on them within a month or so of when they had died. The companies paid up on the wife £13,000 but not the brothers they were beginning to smell the rat. Walter, known as Wattie to his friends was a hopeless alcoholic and in the six months before he died Palmer who told Wattie's servants to uh, give him whatever he wanted paid for 19 gallons of gin to be fed to him. Mm-hmm and possibly strychnine. Next slide. And here's a Victorian race meeting. Those uh, insurance problems just made his plight worse. He went to Shrewsbury races where his young friend, John Parsons Cook, won 3,000 pounds when his horse won a race. And Palmer's horse the next day, interestingly named the Chicken, then lost his race. And that probably sealed Cook's fate. Palmer was desperate. Within a week, Cook was dead after screaming and writhing in agony in the coaching inn in Rugeley, opposite Palmer's house. And all his money had disappeared. So intense and uh, graphic were the convulsions that it was said that at the moment Cook died, the back of his head and his heels were the only bits resting on the bed was arched like a bow it was a gothic horror story death at midnight in a Midlands hotel by the light of flickering candles the servants cowering outside the stuff of real life Victorian melodrama that might have been that except for Cook's stepfather William Stevens who turned up unexpectedly on hearing of Cook's death and wanted to know what had caused it Palmer is said to have exclaimed but he doesn't have any relatives next slide please and there he is giving evidence, William Stevens he was wealthy enough he'd been something in the city to pay for a post-mortem and an inquest and also to get the um, toxicologist, the pathologist Swain Taylor to examine the remains from there it was going to be a one way passage to the gallows even though no, uh, no poison was found in Cook's stomach, which may have been because Palmer jogged the elbow of one of the young men carrying out the dissection, and the stomach and its contents slithered all over the pub's sawdust floor. Uh, the uh, post-mortem on Cook must have been one of the most inept and incompetent ever carried out. It was done by two medical students because uh, the man who was supposed to do it had forgotten to bring his instruments with him. And uh, Palmer encountered one of the young men outside the uh, post-mortem and asked whether he was nervous. Understandably, he was, because he'd he'd not previously even cut up uh, a chicken. Um, And Palmer said, I know just the thing for you, and dosed him up with brandy. So his hand was even more shaky than it might otherwise have been. And uh, they shoveled the stomach back up off the floor of the pub. Lots of people milling around and uh, lots of stuff leaking out of the organ and shoveled it into a glass jar which promptly disappeared. And the coroner said, where's the glass jar with the stomach in it? Palmer, who was sort of disappearing out of the door, said, oh, I was keeping it safe, and brought it back slightly reluctantly. Where he was found to have two slits in the top of the paper wrapping over the top of the jar. Uh, He hadn't got anything out, but um, the jar at least was saved until Palmer then approached the boots of the hotel who was going to drive it over to Stafford Railway Station so it can go down on the train to Swain Taylor's uh, laboratory at uh, Guy's Hospital. And Palmer sidled up to the boots and said he'd give him £10 if uh, the carriage was uh, overturned before it got to the railway station. The young man refused. Can we have another slide, please? Have a look at this other picture of Palmer at the racetrack drawn for one of the newspapers that covered this sensational case. It may be the same man as in the photograph or in the other drawing, but it's subtly different. Piggy's suspicious eyes, a furtive expression, and scribbling away in his little black betting book. Notice the broad mourning band around his top hat, a guilty character if ever you saw one. The picture conveyed a message of wickedness, From it, you could indeed deduce that Palmer was a villain, even if he was dressed in ordinary, respectable clothes. This is how James Hannay, the London correspondent of the New York Tribune, described the case with heavy irony. The 19th century, in spite of its enlightenment, can do little in the way of villains. And when such a one arrives, it appears to have a glimmering that the devil is still extant will travel by rail as readily as by old coach and hides his hooves jauntily in patent leather. He might have been watching Bella Lugosi in Dracula. Hamet would have known that Palmer used the new railway network extensively to get to race meetings across the country and to go to London to buy off his creditors. In more ways than one, he was a new kind of murderer an industrial scientific age. This is a picture of Rugeley High Street showing Palmer's House on the right there. and the Talbot Arms Hotel where Cook died. On the far left there, the distance between, across the street is actually much less than it seems there. It's a very short walk indeed. It would take you five seconds if you walk slowly both houses both the house which is now a pet food shop and the hotel uh, are still there the hotel has been renamed several times it was a rather classy coaching inn in the days of Palmer and Cook Um, it's now um, slightly more seedy it's called The Shrew Um, and uh, on the website where comments and criticisms are uh, Invited. someone's written, this pub is not just the worst pub in Rugeley, it's the worst pub in the West Midlands. (laughs) Uh, And you can see what they mean. This picture was drawn for one of the special supplements about the case that was published before Palmer ever came to trial. It was a time when newspapers and magazines could now print woodblock drawings or lithographs, but before the era of photography as reproductive uh, possibility. The picture carried a message too that Rugeley was an archetypal small country town of normal people going about their normal, innocent pursuits into which the devil in human form had surreptitiously crept. Reporters descended on Rugeley in the aftermath of Palmer's arrest and in a manner startlingly similar to what you might see today in the Daily Mail in the same circumstances they started poking around, interviewing people and drawing a colour picture of what the place was like. Uh, you get the sense reading some of the interviews uh, that whoever they were interviewing was saying, I don't mind if I do At the end of, uh, at the end of the interview. They soon picked up all the gossip and rumours about Palmer and reprinted them. Soon every unexplained death of the past ten years was laid at his door. They'd always known he was a bad lot. He'd seduced local girls and got them pregnant. That at least was true as far as his housemaid was concerned though the reporters didn't pick that up at the time. In the uh, Palmer file at the National Archives there's a rather touching um, statement by the housemaid um, who gave birth to a child nine months and two weeks after uh, Mrs Palmer had died. And this uh, young lady, who was described by some barrister's hand scribbled in the margin as very attractive, um, said, Mr. Dr Palmer wanted his way with me, but I would not let him, not for several days after his wife died. <laughs> uh, there were also allegations that Palmer's wealthy family had silenced their critics or paid them off. That might have been true too. Two reporters were particularly assiduous. One was a young man called Augustus Mayhew. He was the younger brother of the more famous Henry Mayhew, the man who pioneered the interviewing of ordinary people for his book London Labour and the London Poor, the first journalist to think that working people might have something worthwhile to say about their lives and living conditions. If you get sick of uh, Vox Pops on television news, you've got Mayhew ultimately to thank. Young Mayhew worked for a weekly magazine called the Illustrated Times, which was a cheap rival to the Illustrated London news. And he went round rudely speaking to people and digging out the scandal for a special supplement that was published highly prejudicially while Palmer was still awaiting trial. The supplement was so popular it sold 250,000 copies. This is Mayhew describing the Palmer family house in the front of the house in the front of the house there is an imposing aspect. The back premises are dirty and full of dirt. The garden is uncultivated and the mold trodden underfoot until it has grown as hard as the remains of the gravel walks that surround them. There was a bay window at the side of the house too which was tawdry and had no right to be there. With, the, with rich silk curtains which were in the public house school of fancy as for the stables they were a place that a London cabman would scorn to occupy next this is actually what the house looks like now uh, don't you get the authentic tang of the modern daily mail in uh, Mayhew's writing the palmers were actually one of the wealthiest families in Rugeley here's the house today it's still standing, incidentally now occupied by a computer software company. And as you can see, it's rather gracious and substantial as a Georgian building. Palmer's father had six children and had been a timber merchant. and When he died, he left £70,000. Again, do the maths for values. The family had risen to wealth during the Industrial Revolution and the sons had entered the professions one a businessman, one a solicitor, one a clergyman, and William the doctor. Mayhew was not the only journalist sniffing around. There was also a chap called Edward Whitty, who worked for a rival weekly called The Leader, a paper that uh, found um, worries about poisoning in the curry. Wh- Whitty himself conjured up a picture of Rugeley as a rural idyll, a harbour of refuge from the vanities and vexations a frivolous or malicious world, a land flowing with milk and honey. Bearing in mind that the reporters were there in December, in January, this may be the first and only time that Staffordshire has ever been described like that in the middle of winter. Here, if anywhere, one might hope to exhume the simple virtues hitherto buried in the dull dribbling of pastoral rhapsodies. Next photograph, please. This is the inquest. Uh, as depicted for the newspapers at the time. There's Alfred Swain Taylor again, the figure on the right at the lectern, giving evidence that even though he'd found no poison in Cook's organs, which had been sent to him in that glass jar, he was still certain that he'd been poisoned by strychnine, which he described honeysuckle around the doors of the cottages of Rugeley, again remarkable for winter, and the inquest jury is being composed of men with open countenances and lips well apart, of average provincial misunderstanding, and no doubt as weighty as any 23 men in the kingdom. Shaw vacants who stand for hours, occasionally snoring on their legs. Phew! Feel the metropolitan condescension, presumably with the uh, counted never on having to go back to Rugeley. By the time Mayhew and Witchy published their stories, Palmer was as good as convicted of serial murders. His wife, who died a couple of weeks a couple of years earlier, four of his five children, his mother-in-law, his brother, and various racing and gambling acquaintances, as well as Cook. Not quite in the Harold Shipman League, but astonishing for a Victorian gentleman of a good family. Well, goodish no better than they should be, according to Mayhew, who was reporting that Palmer's mother was a slut who'd had affairs with various dubious characters. Uh, and certainly um, Mrs Palmer was fairly doubting. Um, she had a brisk way with rubberneckers who came to look at the house and bought later and uh, would march belligerently down the front path where the Range Rover was uh, parked, and... Uh, and tell them to clear off because they'd hanged her saintly Billy. Nor was it just magazines which followed the sensational case. The Times sent a reporter to cover the inquest. 18,000 words a day. These days you'd be very lucky and it would be a pretty sensational case to get a 1,000 words. 30 journalists covered the inquest. Both the Times and the Manchester Guardian devoted thousands upon thousands of words to the hearings. And by the time the trial got to the Old Bailey in May 1856, The Guardian, for instance, was devoting three of its six editorial pages to a verbatim report. In this, as in so much else, Palmer's timing was unlucky. The reason why the case got so much sensational coverage was not just because it was a wonderfully gothic tale... Because national newspapers now used rotary printing presses developed in the 1840s to turn out many thousands of copies much more quickly than the previous flatbed presses had been able to do. And they could use the railways to deliver them right across the country to hit the breakfast tables of the nation the following morning. And better still, the government had just abolished stamp duty on newspapers six months earlier meaning that their price dropped and they could afford to publish every day. The Guardian previously, the Manchester Guardian, had uh, cost five pence twice a week. It went to a daily paper, which it still is, just, um, and the daily edition then cost twopence. The company rightly believed that people would pay twelve pence a shilling a week for six copies as opposed to ten pence for two. The 1850s was also the decade when the Daily Telegraph was founded, um, and within a very few years it was selling a million copies a day at a penny a time. The demand for news about sensational murders was huge, and the newspapers increased their circulations to deal with it. George Fletcher was fascinated by Palmer, and spent a lifetime studying the case and gathering memorabilia before writing a book about it. In the 1920s. That's where the photograph of Palmer comes from, uh, his book, and that's another reason for assuming its authenticity. Fletcher said that when he was a boy growing up in Birmingham, his father sent him to buy a copy of the Times every day during the trial when the paper arrived at New Street Station. The cover price of the Times was four pence, but it was being sold for three or four shillings, another huge sum a day. Um, because people were so keen to read the news. But how to illustrate the story? Henry Visitelli was the editor of the Illustrated Times, and here he is in the next photograph. You see, despite the quality of the reproduction, he's quite a roughish figure. Um, shamelessly, as he told in his autobiography 40 years later, he got his staff, who he described as half a dozen hungry young literary ghouls, to rifle the archive files for generic pictures, even though they had nothing to do with the case. Next photograph, please. Here's the picture that accompanied the account of Palmer's supposedly riotous days as a medical student in London ten years earlier. There's absolutely no evidence that he was like this. I've read one of his student notebooks in the National Archives at Kew, and they seem to indicate only a diligent, hard-working, neat-writing young man. It was a notebook that was flourished at the trial by the prosecution, allegedly to show that uh, Palmer was fascinated by poisons and finding out about them from an early age. I may be the only person since 1856 to actually have read all 125 pages of the notebook and it contains not a word of poisons. In other words, they were trying it on and Palmer's defence was so weak that they got away with it. So Palmer, probably not riotously drunk like uh, these medical students. Next. And this is the deathbed scene of Palmer's mother-in-law as uh, depicted in the supplement. Um, Actually, she was, by repute and by everything we know, a drunken and vicious old harridan. Her husband, who was an ex-army officer, had committed suicide, apparently, because he couldn't stand her taunts any longer. And she collapsed and died in the street. But the legend was better. Visitelli wrote in his memoirs but he didn't know how he got away with publishing so much prejudicial material. Today one cannot but express one's amazement that a quarter of a million copies of the supplement were allowed to be sold without the courts being appealed to on behalf of the accused and special correspondent, editor, printer, publisher and proprietor being all promptly backed off to jail for so outrageous a contempt of court. As an old journalist myself, I rather warned of his in in his raffishness, but he was certainly right. Next slide, And this is the trial. Here it is. A special act of Parliament had been passed, which has always been known as the Palmer Act, moving the trial to the old Bailey, supposedly to remove the risk of local prejudice against him. Previously, all trials had had to take place in the locality where the crime was committed, But now Palmer was known and notorious right across the country and was regularly being described routinely as a fiend. No one who knew of his case could doubt that he was a mass murderer, even if some of the cases did not stand up to close examination, still less proof in a court of law. When it came to his trial, the Lord Chief Justice Lord Campbell, a publicity hound if ever there was one, Deferred his retirement so he could preside over the case. Next slide, please. That's him in the middle. Those are the judges. Henry Visitelli was in court standing next to a court usher when the judge invited the prisoner to take a seat, a rare courtesy. They were meant to stand in the dock for the duration of their trial. Ah, that shows he means to hang him, the usher said. Post murder trials in this period took less than a day some only a few minutes. Palmer's lasted two weeks. The trial devolved into a battle of experts, Swain Taylor on one side, his great rival Herapath on the other. As no poison had been found in Cook's body, they argued over whether it should have been detectable, and whether Cook's symptoms indicated strychnine poisoning or something similar like tetanus lockjaw, which is then a relatively common disease with so many horses about and in so close a contact with people. Uh, They killed, as Linda was pointing out earlier, absolute mountains of animals uh, to try and prove uh, how much poison was needed. Uh, Rats, cats, dogs, even horses, in great mounds, hundreds and hundreds of them. Uh, When uh, Susie Lishman, who's the deputy president of the... Um, College of uh, Pathologists read the text of my book. She's, her eyes open wide and uh, she said, My goodness, they killed a lot of animals. And of course, most of the animals had absolutely no relevance to uh, the killing of humans. Susan Richman has reached her position without ever examining a case of deliberate poisoning. In the end, a brilliant prosecution by the Attorney-General, Alexander Coburn, won the day against a rather shaky defence, led by a man who'd never conducted a criminal case before. Campbell summed up heavily against Palmer, and the jury took 80 minutes, one wonders what kept them, uh, to decide he was guilty. And he was taken back to Stafford, the county town, to be hanged outside the prison gates. They laid on excursion trains from across the Midlands and the Northwest, and Local people tramped through the cold, wet June night and the darkness to watch Palmer swing in the morning. Stands were erected uh, in the gardens opposite the prison and rooms were hired at large fees uh, in the houses which had a view of the scaffold. Next slide, please. And this was the man who hanged him. His name was George Topper Smith, a black country nail men, uh, maker who undercut the London hangman by doing the job for £5 instead of the standard 10 Smith, who'd been in trouble with the law himself, once for running naked through Tipton while drunk, always conducted executions wearing a smock, and he invested some of his fee on this occasion in buying a new smock, especially for the grand occasion. Incidentally, he was known as Topper, not because he topped people, but because he always wore a top hat, and you can see it there next to him. To add dignity to the throttling. What a man to meet on your last morning. Next slide, please. Palmer never did confess, and there were some who said his guilt had never been proved, even though the circumstantial evidence was strong, at least in Cook's case. Legends grew up around him. What's your poison? The old um, phrase when you're buying a drink for someone is said to derive from William Palmer. Are you sure this damn thing's safe? He's supposed to have asked the hangman on the scaffold. <laughs> and skipping round puddles on the way to the gall uh, on the way to the gallows, I'd hate to catch a cold. Probably these were all apocryphal newspaper inventions, rather like the. Um, well-known story of um, the uh, time council of Rugeley petitioning the Prime Minister uh, to change the name of the town because it had become so notorious. And Lord Palmerston said yes, you can name it after me, Palmerstown. That was um, almost certainly an invention of a bored journalist at the trial because it was printed the very next morning. Thanks largely to the publicity, he went down as the Prince of Poisoners, and has been held as such ever since. He features, as you've heard before this afternoon too, in Sherlock Holmes's story, The Speckled Band. When a doctor goes wrong, he's the first of criminals. And George Orwell listed him as a master criminal in his article, The Decline of the English Murder. Six of those he listed were middle-class poisoners. The murderer should be a little man of the professional classes, living an intensely respectable life somewhere in the suburbs. He should go astray through cherishing a guilty passion for his secretary or the wife of a rival. Does this sound like Crippin? Having decided on murder, he should plan it all with the utmost cunning and only slip up over some tiny, unforeseeable detail. The means chosen should, of course, be poison. And the last... I think that's probably a good place to end uh, this afternoon and indeed the conference. Thank you for listening to me. Um, There's much more about Palmer and his life and crimes, of course, in my book, including his letters to his mistress, which will be on sale, going slightly cheap outside. Are there any questions? Which one? The one you had a minute ago. The
0: one you think was a lithograph or
1: something. Yes, it's from a book by a man called George Fletcher, the man it was sent to, by... Do you want me to tell you where it's from? We, you like to know? Yeah, source. I would. I I have, I'm, I'm speaking from. to them all. Yeah, so you come up? It's just to let you know where it's from, because I haven't been... Of...
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I've tried finding that for months. It's just to let you know that that photograph is from the Harmsworth magazine, 1898. Um, I have a copy of it on my phone, you can have a look. Um, and it's a Madame Tussaud's waxwork. Oh, really? <laughs> well,
1: collapse of Stout What's Party. Uh, collapse of Stout Party, in that case. Um, and also, collapse of George Fletcher, who um, spent a lifetime collecting memorabilia. Has to be said. Um, comparing it with the Death Mask, it's exactly the same. So two swords were doing a good job at that point. We
0: yeah, own his poison box still, and the Prime museum got
1: the letter. Oh right. Well, um, while I was doing the research, um, I was up at uh, uh, the, Ar- the w- William Salt Archive in Stafford, um, mm-hmm. which has a lot of original material. And they said, would you like to see the Jane letters? And they produced this, it was a very dusty old-fashioned archive, and they produced this manila folder, which uh, uh, had in it 34 letters to a woman called Jane that uh, William Palmer had written in the last year of his freedom. She was a woman we don't know who she was, although there are some guesses. And they were like little tweets. He would have used tweets these days. They were all on pieces of paper about that big. Obviously in his handwriting. No waxworks. And you can trace the arc of their relationship. It starts off saying, meet me outside the cathedral. And then it goes, I'll bring salmon for this evening. And then it goes, um, what do you mean you've been feeling ill? Um we can wait a few months to see what happens and then there's another letter saying I know a man in Stafford who can help you Um, he is as silent as death and you need only be there for ten minutes and then there's uh, a little hiatus and he says something like what do you mean you want money and I can't afford to pay you and um, then there's a letter written on the morning of cook's death a few hours afterwards which says i can now afford to pay you 40 pounds and i'll send them in two batches he cut as was common in those days when you sent money through the post he cut the notes in half and then uh, sent them separately <coughs> and he said i want them i want the letters back but he obviously never got them back he put burn this, burn this, burn this on all these communications and there they are sitting in an archive in Stafford Um, she obviously didn't she got £40 and she preserved her anonymity but I'm sorry about the photograph do we have any uh, other questions from the floor? Okay, yeah. So just to remind you, Stephen does have uh, copies of his book going cheap, and uh, I'm sure he will sign them as well. But aside from that, we have a big thank you, Stephen.
0: And that was Stephen Bates with the Prince of Poisoners, William Palmer, and the Trial of the Century. I'd like to thank Frog Moody, Adam Wood, and Steve Ratty for making the release of this recording possible. And a link to Casebook Classic Crime as well as to Mango Books will be in the show notes. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 author interviews, roundtable discussions, and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian and Edwardian true crime. If you have any comments or questions about our podcast episodes, feel free to contact us on the casebook message boards or find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Rivercast. I'd like to thank everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.